welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today, I am speaking with Van Moore, a radiologist from Charlotte, North Carolina. Van has served radiology in many leadership roles, including leading Charlotte Radiology as its president for 16 years and serving the ACR as a delegate to the American Medical Association for over 20 years and as ACR president in 2009. When Strategic Radiology was founded in 2008 as a consortium of private radiology groups, Van became its founding chairman and for the past seven years has also served as its CEO. Today's Strategic Radiology, which focuses on improving clinical quality and operational efficiencies, encompasses over 1,100 private practice radiologists, providing service to more than 250 hospitals across 40 states. Through his leadership roles with Strategic Radiology, Van has been a tireless advocate for practices to remain independent, controlling their own destinies and deciding their own paths toward innovation and growth within a current environment where capital-rich private equity is an attractive alternative to many groups feeling increasingly burdened by the rigors of self-management. Our conversation explores his formative experiences as a nuclear engineer in the U.S. Naval Submarine Service, including perspectives on leadership in the military as compared to those of a radiology practice president, and then ultimately as CEO of a largely volunteer organization striving to build a haven for self-governance where radiology groups can continue to flourish as majority owners of their practices. Van, welcome. Hey, good morning, Jeff. Hey, thanks very much for the opportunity to discuss the leadership experience that I've seen in radiology and medicine. Uh, leadership, as you know, I feel is a critical component for our profession's success in this rapidly changing landscape, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. As am I. Thanks for joining us. You were born and raised in Arkansas. Can you tell us a little bit about your family and your family life during those early years? Yeah, Jeff, growing up in Arkansas was really a unique experience. Uh, my big epiphany was when I was driving through the Bronx one day, uh, going from one duty station to the next. And I reflected on the time that there were probably a lot of individuals that had grown up in the Bronx who had really never left the Bronx. And I thought how lucky I was to have the opportunity to grow up in a place where there are a lot of wide open spaces, a lot of interesting things to do as a individual growing up. My parents made the choice of about staying in one locale for a long period of time. And as a result, they, you know, I had to have an opportunity to grow up in a community and watch the community evolve as I went through the public school system in Pine Bluff. Are there any early experiences or lessons that you recall from your family life that have served to guide your leadership approach through your subsequent years of professional service? I think that 
looking at what my parents did. Both were committed to the community and growing the community, being productive leaders in the community and, and contributors to what was going on. And so as a result, I got to be instilled in what the community was was all about and learn that and be a part of that, watching my parents and the other leaders uh, in the community help evolve and foster the community along. So I got to learn that you know, they're, no matter who they are, each, each person is an individual in addition to having sometimes great responsibilities, but that they all put their pants on one leg at a time and they're, they're all very human. They make mistakes like everybody else. And so it was a unique insight to me in seeing the uh, social fabric of leadership and community from that perspective. You attended the University of Mississippi under a U.S. Navy ROTC scholarship, earning a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering. Among the branches of the military, as a kid growing up in a landlocked state, what attracted you to the Navy? Great question. I don't know. For some reason, I was a Navy buff as a kid and enjoyed reading Navy history, probably one of my favorite set of books during that time was the Captain Hornblower set of books. And I really read the whole series from cover to cover for the whole thing. And that really led to me a sort of a fascination and interest in not only the Navy, but the Navy leadership. And then the uh, Navy itself is something that if I was going to do a military, have a military uh, career, that the Navy would be a pretty neat thing to do. So probably the books help. And there are a lot of other pieces that I read about and watched over the years and just thought that the Navy would be a neat place to be. That's terrific. Did you have a military service in your family? I had some cousins that were in the military, but there's not a big history of military service in my family. I know that dating way back, my Relatives were in the military at various stages throughout the history of the country, but nothing that was really uh, drove my desire to choose the Navy over others. During your senior year as an undergrad, you served as student body president of the engineering school. Yeah. What led you to seek that office? Well, yeah, again, part of the, the leadership sort of process I was lucky to be chosen as the overall commander for all the ROTC units at Ole Miss for my senior year. And I just felt that uh, there needed to be some leadership within the School of Engineering. And they decided to have a a student body organization. And I stood for election for the, the president and actually won. It was a fun time because I got to represent the student body to the faculty at that point in time and created an interchange between discussions between what the needs of the student body were, the needs of the engineering school. And I thought it was a pretty neat experience. That's fantastic. In our second episode, I spoke with Judy Yee, who was also uh, her student body president as an undergrad, a really interesting connection and telltale sign of future leadership. 
So after college, you spent five years in the Navy focusing on nuclear reactors and the submarine service. Can you tell us a bit about your years of service? Well, it was interesting. Initially, I was going to be a Navy pilot, uh, but my career was changed in the last part of my senior year at Ole Miss. Admiral Rickover and his team uh, asked me to come to Washington for an interview. And at that point in time, my whole career was changed because uh, there was a significant need for officers to serve in the submarine service. And so it was either automatically volunteered or drafted into the submarine service, which from my perspective turned out to be a phenomenal experience for me. The uh, program that they put you through with respect to nuclear power school and then reactor training and then subsequently submarine school is a phenomenal program, probably similar to, in some respects, to the program that they put the astronauts through. That's what they go through with the cramming you full of knowledge uh, throughout that entire time, just a constant treadmill of being in classes and learning, preparing you to go out and serve on the submarines and do the things that you need to do to run a nuclear power plant under the ocean. Yeah, sounds remarkable. Did you spend much time at sea? I spent several uh, years at sea. Uh, We would be mostly underwater when we would go to sea. Typically for a couple of months at a time, you would go out and then come back and replenish and go out again. Within the highly confined and presumably stressful environment of a nuclear submarine, I would imagine that your superiors exercised a command and control approach to leadership. How did your exposure to this type of leadership influence your approach to leadership later in your career? Well, it was different. If you look at the military, obviously, it's very hierarchical and the commanding officer is basically king on any vessel in the Navy, just like any military service has a hierarchy and the boss is the boss. He or she has the final word. What you do learn is command and, and control piece and how to, to be not only learning about leadership but from those above you, what you like, what you don't like, what you think if you were in their shoes, what you would change what the responsibilities are that they have as they exercise and or you know taking the group through what process or problem that you have at the current time. But I think that what it does is it gives you insight into the workings of other organizations that I've participated in over the past many years and how that's different and how you have to cope and look at other ways to to lead. Yeah, leadership is, I think, a, a couple things. There's leadership and there's followership. And so my thought has always been that you need to know what it is to be a good leader. And if you choose not to lead, then what you have is an experience of what you need to be a good follower and how, how a good follower can make a leader down the road, enhance the organization and be a positive uh, attribute to what's going on. Did you find 
that you needed to unlearn some aspects of leadership that were effective in the Navy, but not in civilian medical practice? I think the only thing that you unlearn is that if you give an order in the Navy or any branch of service, then the order is the order and those that are subsequent uh, to your control or your management, then that's what you do. You say, aye, aye, sir, and you go forward whether you're taking the order or where you're giving it. What you do is is respect of more of uh, leading organizations, especially organizations' positions. The thing I think that's key is that as a leader, you need to work. You can give an order or you can make a request, but in looking at it, you really to be able to get the buy-in that you need to create the culture that you need in an organization. It's really leading about what you're trying to do and getting them to want to do what you're suggesting, not just doing it simply because you say so, but because it's part of what needs to happen in order to advance the organization or the patient care that's going forward. There's a bit of a different culture in medicine in contrast to the way the military works. Certainly an important distinction. After investing so much in learning how to serve on a nuclear submarine and managing a nuclear reactor under the sea, what led you to disengage from that life after five years and pursue medicine? Good question. I always felt that a Navy career was something that was a possibility, but that would I enjoy it and doing that as a career for the rest of my life. I'd always, as a child, respected the physicians that I knew in the community and what they were doing and how much they were a part of the community in terms of not only patient care, but in having the well-being of the community at hand. And so I made a decision, you know, not even when I was leaving, not to even think about going into a career of engineering, which is sort of what I thought that I would do when I was 18 and made the decision to choose an engineering career instead of an appointment in Annapolis. But the difference was, I think it just it just felt right. I'm not sure how to explain it any differently in that uh, it was something that I felt that I could do well for people, something I would be interested in. And then with my career you know, in the Navy, learning so much about the you know, nuclear engineering and all the other th- the things that go on there. You know, nuclear, nuclear medicine was an up-and-coming field in radiology at the time, and I felt that, you know, gee, this would be an opportunity to take what I've already learned, spent a bunch of time learning in the Navy and practicing it, and then apply that in a constructive manner to a new career in medicine. As well considered, and certainly important to listen to your inner voice uh, when making these critical life decisions. You started medical school six years after graduating from college with your naval service in the middle. I imagine that you were one of the older members of your medical school class. Were there many other veterans starting medical school with you? No, it was an interesting time. You know, it was during the uh, Vietnam era. I was the only vet in my class at the time. And, you know, with all the goings on with respect to Vietnam and whatnot, 
there, it was a little bit of attention related to, you know, being a vet. But I think the experience that I had in the, the Navy, especially in nuclear power school, being in medical school was a totally different experience. The part about engineering school is that you would take a problem and you would solve, approach it and solve the problem and come with a solution. I remember one of my chemical engineering professors would come in and to the class and would give a problem. And for the next four hours during the examination, you would go through and you would come up with what your solution was to how that you would solve the, the problem that we, we did. And a lot of times it, the problems would be very complex and at the end of four hours, you'd be more pulling your hair out, but you knew you had to come up with an answer. The thing that I learned the most from that professor was that at the end of that four hours, we had another four hours the rest of the day. He came in and he said, okay, now what I want you to do is as a team, I want you to come up with the solution that you think is best for what you want to try to solve. And probably the biggest lesson that you learn there is that while as an individual, you may have good ideas, you know, as a team, pulling together and working through a solution, but exchanging ideas, the solution we came up with as a class was far better than any individual solution that any of us had at the end of the day. And so it was a engineering school, more of a problem solving process. What I found medical school to be was really more as much knowledge as you could learn but there was never really a premium placed on the use of that knowledge and how that how do you go about applying the knowledge to solve you know, problems, whether they're simple or complex. You go through some of that through your clinical uh, years, but it's a long time before you get to the point of where you really you take a problem-solving approach to some of the issues that I think are important in di- diagnosing medicine. Yeah, no doubt. I think that uh, in medical education, even today, we still struggle with opportunities to bring team-based ethos to problem solving. It's an ongoing challenge. Beginning your residency in 1974, your choice of a career in radiology must have been made around 1972, which was prior to the introduction of CT and MRI and when diagnostic sonography was in its infancy. What led you to choose a career in radiology at that moment in time? I had thoughts of actually doing a couple of things. One is I had an interest in orthopedic surgery. I was good with my hands. It was orthopedic surgery is problem solving in the way that you approach uh, orthopedic problems, uh, whether injuries or congenital or whatnot. And with the background that I had in nuclear medicine uh, or in nuclear engineering, I thought that I could apply that and have a sort of a double level of interest with respect to nuclear medicine and combining that into a more of a double double boarded specialty where I could have the best of both worlds and using that to treat patients and uh, advanced medicine. It became relatively clear after a while that you really can't be a slave to two masters. And I felt that with the advent of uh, CT coming on, there was some new stuff that was coming on in ultrasound that what I would really like to do 
and, and more fit my persona long term was to take a career in radiology and interventional radiology, which wasn't what we called it when we were at Duke, is really basically the angio service where we did a lot of the things there. But that was a unique opportunity to use some of the tools that you do use in radiology, but to also have a lot of patient interaction and patient care opportunities. So interventional radiology, even in those early years, was a major attractant for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. After spending a few years in the faculty at Duke, you transitioned into private practice with Charlotte Radiology, where you've practiced for the past 35 years. Based on everything that followed, it seems to have been a great decision. What led you to make it, meaning to go to Charlotte Radiology from Duke? It was interesting, Jeff. At that point in time, I was looking at what did I want to do for the rest of my life within radiology. And I looked at a lot of private practices. A friend of ours, Carl Raven, was interested in me staying at Duke. And uh, there was opportunities for careers in academics. And I almost got to the point where I was making the decision to stay in the academic practice. But I got the opportunity to come to Charlotte and visit a practice, which was then called Charlotte Memorial Hospital. And there was a phenomenal group of radiologists there that when I looked at what they were doing critically over the visits that I made prior to making the decision to come, they were practicing radiology at a level that was equivalent to what was going on at Duke. They were academically oriented. Several were uh, academic refugees, if you will. And they really were focused on quality in medicine, patient care, but bringing the best practice of medicine. In fact, you know, one of the interesting things that was there is that Charlotte Memorial Hospital at the time got the first MR unit in the state of North Carolina a couple of years before Duke got one. And that just as a tribute to what they were trying to do in, in practicing medicine, they had an academic faculty at uh, Charlotte Memorial, and they also had a residency training program, though didn't have one in radiology. And so I made the decision to give it a shot. Uh, to see what I could do there. And I didn't think I was burning any bridges because of the quality of the medicine that they were practicing in radiology. As a result, I was able to be the first interventional radiologist in Charlotte. I was able to drive that service and grow that service in not only the Carolinas, but now, but in the city. And it was been a great experience. I mean, there was a lot of things that I I was simply able to do because I took the initiative. Innovation was encouraged, taking things to the next level. And you had the opportunity to really grow into the practice and help be instrumental in what the practice was trying to accomplish and help be a part of setting the vision for that. Sounds like a very exciting time and a great opportunity. How large was Charlotte Radiology when you joined, and how large is it today? I was the 13th radiologist to join Charlotte Radiology, so 13th has been a lucky number for me for a a long period of time. Charlotte Radiology now is close to 100 radiologists today, so we were able to not only grow through the growth of the hospital system, which was Carolina's healthcare system, 
Shaw Memorial. The leader there was a fellow named Harry Nurkin, who also came from Duke, but had a vision of growing not only the the hospital, but becoming a regional powerhouse in terms of bringing together other hospitals within the Carolinas healthcare system. And his vision laid the platform and the groundwork for growing it into a substantially large regional healthcare network over time. So he was one of the first people that had that vision. And as a result, we were able to grow Charlotte Radiology along with the footprint of what Carolinas was doing, especially in the region. So that was a uh, good opportunity for Charlotte Radiology. And as a result, the practice was probably one of the first private practices in the country to subspecialize early, really have dedicated neuroradiologists only reading neuro cases, uh, interventional radiologists doing the IR and not just having everybody do it, uh, body-trained radiologists, nuclear medicine, the whole, the whole nine yards. So not only did we grow in terms of the larger footprint, but we were able to then grow our subspecialty expertise. And one of the goals that I had was to hyper-subspecialize to the extent that was possible and really developing specialty niches within the practice that would help cover the growing footprint that we have so that the small community hospital in Waysboro, North Carolina that we covered, we get the same subspecialty expertise available as a a patient in radiology that they would get at Carolina's Medical Center. Yeah, that's a uh, an important vision and appreciate how well articulated it is. One point that I don't want to lose track of is that it appears that you had great alignment with the leadership of Carolina's health from an early stage and that a lot of the opportunity for growth in Charlotte radiology came about because of that alignment. Absolutely. Terrific. Now, there's been some big changes in healthcare delivery in Charlotte. For many of your years with Charlotte Radiology, including your leadership service, Charlotte Radiology grew to be one of the largest practices in the country. And I imagine that's in no small part owing to the fact that it was essentially an anchor tenant of Carolina's Health. Of course, Carolina's Health is now Atrium Health. As you look back, on your years with Charlotte Radiology, do you see distinct periods with clear strengths and opportunities for the practice uh, and the health system? Or does it sort of blur into one continuous arc? I think it's more of a broad career arc. Carolina was one of the early hospital systems that actively purchased primary care practices in the city, which drove a competition between the system now that's known as Novant within Charlotte and uh, Carolinas or now Atrium. But we were concerned and wanted to maintain our independence during that period of time. And you have such a large piece of what you're doing, it being income derived from one hospital system, it's an area that you need to work through and problems that you need to work through with respect to being a good partner to the hospital system that you're working for and being responsible for the care of the patients. My philosophy was always that if there were problems there, I wanted to have the ability to go to the hospital system and say, well, this is the problem that we identified, and this is how we solved it. If you have any issues or questions in terms of how 
the uh, process is or any feedback, let us know that we can address those issues. But I didn't want the system to say that you've got this problem and please solve it. I felt that we need to be proactive in taking care of our own business and our own practice issues. In the course of achieving the growth that you described for Charlotte Radiology and the expansion of Carolina's Health, there has evidently been a fair amount of consolidation in Western North Carolina to bring practices into alignment, to bring hospitals into the system and such. Any issues related to that? What approach did you take? as the leader of Charlotte Radiology, to help to integrate other practices if that was something that you were needing to do? What we did is it made sense. As Carolinas grew, we would talk and have discussions with the various practices that were at hospitals that the Carolinas had gone into. And at that point in time, there was not a need identified by the hospital to integrate the radiology practices to have more of a single radiology provider within the area, looking at the local radiology groups to provide the local care. And as a result, there was no real driver for increasing the consolidation within the system itself. Locally within South Central Piedmont, if you will, we were able to bring practices together that were part of the system and even have several hospitals that were not part of Carolinas. Some of them became part of Carolinas going forward that we do provide practice coverage for. So we covered, I think, 14 hospitals. Now the largest being Carolinas, the smallest being a hospital in Waysboro. And we do that through teleradiology network so that even though we'll have a radiologist on site, uh, the radiology care is the same subspecialty care that we're providing throughout the enterprise. So we load balancing it. We've got you know virtual sections throughout the system. The largest practice that came, became part of Charlotte Radiology was uh, Cabarrus Radiology, which is at the Northeast Hospital in Concord. But we've undergone an integration with them, especially the nighttime services, pulling the services together, and it's been a good fit for. I think the hospitals that have joined us and also for the Charlotte Radiology as a whole. So, Van, what is strategic radiology? Strategic radiology is a group of uh, practices across the country that are collaborating. They really have an interest in maintaining their independence as it relates to not being employed by hospitals or not going a corporatization route that some of the private equity firms and publicly traded companies have been offering. They're interested in working together to help raise the water level for all of the ships as we go forward. We've got the only uh, radiology-specific patient safety organization in the country. We've developed our business intelligence operations and data sharing and doing a lot of uh, data sharing with respect to best practices, aggregating, comparing data. So that if there's something that we need to do together that we can pull together and be able to aggregate and pull that data going forward. We participated in our experiences with the college in commenting to 
CMS on various issues going forward. We're working together to combine our resources as it relates to contributing to the RNE Foundation and have established the first SR RSNA research team. And so those are things that we are able to do work together that none of us could do really individually. And in addition, we just received our first grant looking at research message for direct patient communication of incidental radiology findings that are seen in emergency healthcare systems. So there are a lot of things that we find that we can do together, but it's a real challenge and test of how do you develop the teamwork that's needed, how to develop the culture when you have different cultures and different geographies across the country. Sure. What led to its founding? How did the founding of strategic radiology come about? Well, it's an interesting story, Jeff. Early on, when Paul Berger was still with Nighthawk, he had the idea that we would come and meet together and using the platform that he was developing within Nighthawk to have the practices come together and share the platform, but also start sharing and growing a national practice through that, and that Nighthawk would facilitate making it happen. As a result of that meeting, I think the practices that were there felt that, gee, this is something that we don't really necessarily need Nighthawk to organize for us. We can do it ourselves. And so the various leaders of the practices got together. We had a couple of formative meetings and founded what was called National Radiology Group Network at the time. And as the network came together, put together its bylaws and operating agreement, felt that they wanted to have officers. And I, I stood for election for being the chairman of the board at the time. And that's how I was brought into the leadership from that point in time. And what year was that? That was in 2008. So strategic radiology initially came about because of the interest of Paul Berger and building a national teleradiology service, and then a number of leaders of large radiology practices coming together and saying, we don't need Nighthawk to lead us uh, through that. There's a lot of things we can do together, and let's start working together. Is that a proper summary? It's a proper summary, yes. And so, as you mentioned, you stood for election and became chairman of the Board of Managers, and then subsequently became the chief executive officer in 2012. How did the elements of those roles differ, and why wasn't there a CEO from the start? Well, we actually did have a CEO from the start. We had a couple of them that were in the leadership early on. And it evolved that at the end of the tenure of the second CEO, the board felt that they wanted to have a physician CEO instead of a business manager type practice administrator CEO. I did the role as an interim CEO for a while, bridging the gap until we made the decision about doing it. And then at that point in time, uh, the, the board felt that a physician CEO was something that they wanted to put in place. And I was moved from the interim to the CEO, the active CEO at the time. Yeah, that's terrific. It shows a lot of confidence that the board had in you. 
What were the main factors that led the board to decide that they wanted to transition from a non-physician CEO to having the physician leader? The idea was really more of you needed to have a team. And as the board chair, I was, in fact, the physician leader of strategic radiology, but it didn't have really an official role within the organizational infrastructure. And so the way that we structured it at the time was that we wanted to have a CEO, which would be a part-time physician, but have a full-time chief operating officer who was a practice administrator type or someone that was experienced in uh, managing the evolution of groups. What you have to realize is that we had a ton of extremely seasoned, experienced practice leaders, administrators within strategic radiology, and they had a very active network talking to each other. And so it wasn't for a lack of experienced uh, CEOs that we had, because we had a ton of experience. It was, we really needed someone to help organize the business, help coordinate the business activities going forward and be the liaison on the business side. So much of the success that I had as being the leader at Charlotte was the fact that you've got to have good people that work for you. And there's no way that as the physician leader in a medical practice that you're going to come in with all the knowledge and expertise and experience that you need to have in running the the business side. So it was really a team effort that we developed the COO that we have depending upon the experience of all the the medical practice leaders within the group. So it really was more of a team approach in terms of physician and an administrative leader. And the administrative leader we picked was someone that had built its own business. It actually sold his business and so really had the knowledge and experience of how to do a lot of these things and from the bottom up, which is very helpful. Sure, but you could have picked a model where you had the practice administrator as the CEO and the physician leader as the chief medical officer, as opposed to having the physician leader as the CEO and the practice administrator as the COO. Can you just help us understand the nuances between those two possibilities and why the group felt more comfortable with physician CEO? and COO practice manager? It's interesting that you say that because then you're getting to the point of where you start to talk about titles. And I I take the opinion or have the opinion that you're really looking at a lead administrator uh, or a non-physician type and a lead physician. Whether you call them the COO, the CEO, the uh, CMO, the whatever. It's really how well those individuals work together and complement each other in their roles and experience backgrounds. And so we'd really look at it more of a generic business part of the side, you know, whether you're the COO or CEO is not necessarily as important as the functions that you're trying to make happen for that. As you go back and you look at team building and you look at lessons that you learn in the military, especially. When you look at the uh, the Navy SEALs, what you want to do is you want to have individuals that are a good part of the team. You want to have 
clear sets of objectives and expectations. And each team member's got to have different skills. And diversity and team makeup is going to be important. And so when you bring somebody in, you know, you listen to them. You know, you're not expected to necessarily make all the decisions, but if the good decision has come to it, you're comfortable with it, then you you give them the latitude to be innovative and creative in, in what they're doing and encourage that. So I think that's important in in any sort of a team where the individual has a very important role. Yeah, fair enough. So team trumps title, if I were to summarize. Yes. When considering the partnership model of strategic radiology, what dynamics did you observe when you got all the leaders of these big, successful private practices together in a room? Was there jostling for position? Did some try to dominate? Or was there an ethos of cooperation and one for all, all for one from the start? Uh, It was a mixture. I think what I talk about in the leadership that we have is that when you come into the boardroom, you take off your group hat and you put on your SR hat. And while you may have groupthink in the background, that what we want to have here is SR think. As we grow SR, then we need to have the combination of as you have groupthink, then you need to have SR think in the background in all the decisions that you make in terms of what is it, how is the groupthink going to impact SR think and vice versa. But how do you, how do you as a culture, as a team of collaborative practices, develop a culture where you have both concepts operating in the background is part of the ethos, as you, you say, going forward. Yeah, and th- this really harkens back to what you mentioned before about followership. Did followership come naturally to this group of leaders? And if not, how were you able to encourage it? Followership is something I think that you have to learn. The big question is, are leaders born or are they made? I think that certain people have the ability to be a leader, but I honestly more believe that they're made rather than than born. So it's a a concept of going from a transactional sort of a process to really more of a process where you're looking at the total, the overall good and what you're trying to accomplish and that recognizing that working together as a team that you as a team member will succeed if the team succeeds. And so developing a, a culture of all the practices together, working together, it's a challenge. And how do you separate the economics necessarily and the transactional nature from the concept that if you look at game theory, you say, okay, there's a, there's a finite game and then an infinite game. Well. It's my view that radiology and medicine as a profession is really in an infinite game. This has been going on for centuries and will continue to go on. And we're, we're playing in a more of an infinite game. And so the challenge is, is how do we as leaders, and this is why I think leadership is so important to radiology, uh, to the Radiology Leadership Institute, I put it you know, number one, up there, but nonetheless, it's so important in developing a culture within our profession that we understand that this is and not related back to a transactional 
thing or sort of a finite game idea is that, okay, well, you do this and you won and then you, you know, you pack up your bags and you go home. Well, there, you're moving on to a different phase in the game. If you were, if you're looking at the infinite game type theory part. So developing culture is probably the key piece that I think is there. And that's a real challenge. And I think it's not only just developing it within a corporation, but we as a profession need to develop that amongst all our members, young and old, and especially need to bring the young radiologists and physicians coming into medicine a part of learning this process. Now, you and I have had the discussion before. One of the biggest deficits that I saw in medical school was that there's absolutely no focus on leadership. Whereas the reverse was true in my training as a naval officer is the very first week I was in the program, we started having weekly classes on leadership and that persisted throughout the entire time. You never stopped learning about leadership. It's a continuum. So how do we develop that philosophy with yeah, medicine? Yeah. It's an ongoing process, no doubt. Thank you for being such a strong voice in favor of supporting leadership training and leadership education. Clearly very, very important. Now, when looking at the Strategic Radiology website, there are eight practicing radiologists listed as executive committee members and what appears to be a rich collection of committees that are reporting up to the executive committee. With a corporate structure that's defined as a coalition and the recognition that every one of the leaders in strategic radiology has clinical and local leadership responsibilities, what steps do you as the CEO take to keep the team on track and accountable for getting things done for SR? Well, that's the key to having a good team that uh, works together and you can assign the responsibility to others for making the things happen. They've got to be people that are dedicated. They have to understand the mission of what you're trying to do, but also responsible and uh, understand accountability so that you set goals and then they're responsible for uh, knocking those goals out. So I'm comfortable with the leadership team that we have in that we set the goals that I'm, if there's a problem accomplishing the goals that that's what I'll hear about and that I can have, make the assumption that the goals are being accomplished unless I hear something different. So again, it's about getting good people, about listening to them, about giving them responsibility, giving them the latitude to be innovative and creative in what they're trying to accomplish such that the overall product, I believe, is going to be much better than if I was trying to be prescriptive uh, what I thought they would do. Now, if they ask my opinion, I'm more than happy to give it and try to give guidance as to what, if it were me, what I would be doing. But I think it's, again, about you know having a good team and relying on your team members to be good leaders and good followers. Yeah, and within the context of what essentially is a volunteer organization amongst the leaders, it seems that you really have to rely on the intrinsic motivation of those leaders to want to work and contribute because there really isn't a mechanism to provide extrinsic motivation. When you consider, for example, alternative models, some of the 
private equity supported consolidated practices that we're increasingly seeing where there's a lot of funding to support a administrative structure. Do you think that that offers some unique benefits to being able to compensate people for the time they contribute to uh, their leadership responsibilities? Or do you feel that at least amongst the leaders that you have at SR, that the intrinsic motivation, the drive within the volunteer culture is sufficient to get things done effectively? Well, it's a great question. I think that if the compensation model where you bring people in and you, you give them defined responsibility and you certainly, then you reward them or they have, you know, that's their specific job for which they're paid. And I think the expectation is there's going to be certain results and the results are dictated or mandated by what the leadership wants to have happen. Certainly, there clearly is advantage to being able to have a big pocketbook to be able to, to fund those activities. But I think distinguishes the team that we have together is that they value the local and regional presence that they have and what they're doing and the local control of their practice and not basically becoming employees of a a multi or a national organization. And then the organization really owning the practice and you're simply a physician practicing within the ownership where you may have a, a ownership stake, but in most instances, uh, if not all, the physician ownership component is less than that, the equity company or uh, corporation, if you will. So what I see is strategic radiology is developing the backbone and the infrastructure for all of the practices to pool resources where we grow that infrastructure together, like the things we talked about, the PSO, looking at the various things about revenue cycle management and whatnot, and develop best practices within that so that we can all learn from each other. But that really the practices will provide the tools for the practices to grow locally and regionally to become stronger in their own right and not necessarily need the access to capital going forward. Cheryl Proval, our marketing director, talked about the Sphinx-like problem that we have is how do you compete in a uh, changing environment when you've got private equity funds that are pouring hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into aggregating these practices, and we're more working together to be able to solve those issues with the existing infrastructures that we have and building that infrastructure gradually. Over the long run, there's no real driving mechanism to have a national practice. There's no national contracting like you're seeing with some of the consolidation in the insurance business and whatnot. And it may never be. You never know. But that all of our practices are benefiting from the collaboration that we have. And in the end, uh, should there become a national driving force that, like obliviation of the uh, interstate banking laws that caused the, the massive rapid consolidation of the banking industry, or the deregulation of airlines, which caused the airlines to consolidate, that strategic radiology and the practices that are involved with us will be, will build the trust, will be in process of building the culture such that we can become that platform down the road.
That's great. Understood. What would you say have been strategic radiology's biggest wins to date? Well, I think some of the things we talked about earlier got a, a fair amount of trust in what we're doing. I think that we're looking at playing the long game. You know, we've established the patient safety organization and a, a lot of business intelligence uh, type stuff, best practices, the data sharing, the collaboration in a lot of different areas. We've had seven practices in the last 12 months that are from 14 to 43 radiologists that we have. And now we've got several others that are, are interested uh, in becoming a part of strategic radiology. So if you look at the alternatives out there, strategic radiology really is a strong alternative to those practices who prefer not to sell their practices and who remain independent. And this gives them an opportunity to not only remain independent, be able to grow locally and regionally, gives them a lot of resources they'd never be able to have themselves. And in doing such, not only makes them better, but we look to make each other better. That's terrific. And congratulations on all that success. Reading some of the early news articles following SR's founding, the focus seemed to be on taking things slowly, picking the low-hanging fruit, and trying not to mm -hmm. bite off too much. How do you view those sensibilities through the lens today of so much activity with private equity? Do you think that that's been the right approach? To take things slowly? pick the low-hanging fruit? The practicality of it is that to be able to do it in any different way, I think had private equity not entered the picture where they had the large amounts of money that they're putting out there for offering some, especially some of the, the large practices, then I think we would have had a different uh, outcome or a different sort of medical landscape at this point in time. But I think as practices have made certain decisions, some large practices have said, you know, we don't want to go that route. We want to stay independent and, and do it ourselves. Others have felt that, well, gee, we want to take the money and the risk off the table and do a different type of transaction. So I don't see that we could have done it any other way, to be honest. Not that I didn't try to go much faster. It's a sort of a evolution process within Medicine, as we look at where do we want to be as a profession five and 10 years ago, is selling your practice to a private equity company or someone else, is that in the best interest of your practice? Is it the best interest of your patients or your community? And what about the radiologists that are not at the end of your career but want to have a 30-year or 40-year horizon going forward? One of the things that I want to see a way of paying it forward, if, if you will, is I really would like to see the radiologists that are coming into medicine today, or the people coming into medicine today, not just radiologists, to have the same abilities, to have the same opportunities that I have had. And I think having a strong group of independent practices, especially high quality practices, is something that the profession needs long term. And to be in practices that, uh, develop and encourage innovation and not uh, innovation killers necessarily. Not that these practices are killers, but that I hear more people talking about frustration of being able to innovate in a, a big practice where there's a large managerial hierarchy than there are when you have leaders that understand and encourage it. 
Yeah. That clearly speaks to the value proposition that you've tried and sought to establish with strategic radiology. So it sounds like from your perspective, strategic radiology has gotten the pace of development right and that it hasn't been too slow to grow or to innovate that it's happening at the pace that it needs to happen at. I'm not a pusher and want to make things happen at a different pace, but I always classify the difference between a target and a, and a leader, sort of how far in front of the group that you get. If you get so far in front of the group that there's a big disconnect, then you, you tend to become more of a target. If you're a leader, then you think you need to be far enough ahead that you continue to have traction in pulling the group with you. And they may go kicking and screaming, but those are the things that you need to to bring forward. And so a good leader has got to be, in my view, has always got to be advocating for change and for innovation and for doing things differently. And again, it goes to the difference between being a good follower and a good leader is if you're not going to lead, then you have to understand what it needs to be to be a good follower and facilitate what the leader is trying to do. After serving in the leadership of Charlotte Radiology for 22 years, 16 as president, founding strategic radiology with Charlotte Radiology as an anchor tenant, Charlotte Radiology recently dropped out of SR and joined with Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe, a private equity firm with $22 billion in capital to found U.S. radiology specialists. What are your thoughts on that transition? Well, I've got mixed thoughts, Jeff. I've felt that I would rather, might have much rather seen Charlotte take a greater leadership role and the current leaders going forward to not go the private equity route and to, to really look at putting a lot of their energy into help growing strategic radiology. And there's certainly a difference of an opinion that we had, but I respect what the leadership and the group is wanting to try to do. Certainly, it's not going to be an easy road by any stretch of the imagination, and who knows as to what the long-term outcome is going to be. I think that's certainly going to be up for grabs. That said, I think that they're trying to do some of the right things and develop a little bit of a different model with respect to the way that they're constructed. I think the uh, story will be told. You know, we'll know in five or ten years whether it's the right thing to do or not. And there may be no right thing or wrong thing in the process. But again, my preference would have been that they would not made the transition, but they did. That's a, a very gracious response to a tough question. How was the news of Charlotte moving on to this new private equity relationship taken within strategic radiology? Oh, there's a lot of disappointment. Charlotte was an anchor group for a long period of time, in part because of I was the president of Charlotte Radiology, leader of Charlotte Radiology at the time, as well as the leader of strategic. And Charlotte was a key member of the group, helping grow a lot of the infrastructure that we put in place over the time. So we develop a lot of friends, and they'll still be our friends going forward. We hope things go well with the transition, uh, but not that doesn't mean that we won't want to work as hard as we can in helping strategic radiology succeed. Yeah, have you been able to use this news to strengthen resolve amongst the remaining strategic radiology members? Remaining members are making the decisions for themselves, looking at the pluses and the minuses of 
whether they think that that's the direction that they want to go in. It's a, really a question of conviction. You know, if, if you look at the military and if you look at other organizations, one of the things that you have to have is you have to have the members of the organization really be committed and be all in. And so the group that we have, folks that we have now, are pretty much those that are really dedicated to what they want to do to remaining independent and looking to growing locally and regionally and using strategic radiology as a platform to help them accomplish their local and regional goals, learn from best practices from others, and in the end, maintain their goal of staying independent and making things happen in, in their their own communities and really keeping their patients first. Yeah. I noticed that diversified radiology in Colorado, which was also a founding member of Strategic and still identifies their relationship with Strategic Radiology on their homepage, is now listed as a founder of U.S. radiology specialists as well. How can a coalition of private groups compete against billions in capital? I mean, is that is that the challenge in a nutshell? It's the, if, if, as you will, the solving the problem of the Sphinx, the question the Sphinx would ask. How do we do that? And I think you, you really do depend on, just like the college does, depends on a lot of volunteer hours, a lot of people committed to the vision of what the college is doing, what the RLI is doing, and sees it as something that's important to accomplish. We have a lot of good friends in Diversified and a lot of friends in, in Charlotte Radiology, and that doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to pursue our goals. The practices and, and strategic are going to continue their goals of wanting to grow and collaborate together. Great. Yeah. Recently, Strategic Radiology provided funds to the RSNA's Research and Education Fund to support a seed grant recipient. You mentioned this a little bit. That's an uncommon investment for a professional practice. Of all the applications for strategic radiology's resources, why choose that one? Well, I think it's, uh, again, sort of the process of paying it forward, investing in a profession. And after credit, Greg Carnese, who actually came up with the idea of uh, pooling uh, our resources together. But once we did that, then we pulled, put together and committed to an $800,000 grant to the RSME for uh, SR-funded grant program in our name. The idea would be that what we want to see is programs developed by the RSNA that would necessarily look at the independent practice of radiology or developing leadership in terms of how can leaders be developed over the years and really focus on radiology and, and medical professionals really having a greater role in the leadership of our profession and not delegate those responsibilities to others uh, that are not uh, radiology professionals that don't have the same idea. So it was our idea of paying it forward, and I think the team feels pretty good about it. As you should. That was a fantastic step. And it makes me think back to our first episode when I talked to Bill Thorworth, and he has attempted a campaign over the years of convincing private practices to support investment in research and in academia and such. And it's great to see the embodiment of that realized through strategic radiology. So congratulations for that. It's fantastic. 
I think that Bill's idea of 1% is, is a good one. And I guess it goes back to the leadership piece, which, again, which I feel is so critical to the long-term survival of the medical profession, but uh, investing in our profession and investing in sort of the culture of what our profession is, are we really doing enough to be able to ensure that we have a continuum that will uh, continue for centuries to come? I think that's going to be important. Absolutely. At least some decades before those centuries. You have been a tremendously active supporter of the American College of Radiology. 11 years on the Board of Chancellors. You were awarded the gold medal from the college. During your ACR presidential address in 2009, you focused on change as a theme. In fact, I recently reviewed uh, the manuscript that was written, and there are multiple subheadings in the manuscript, but they're all the same. They're all the word change. Mm -hmm. Thinking back to that address and the issues facing the college then, what do you see as the most important changes that radiologists should be attending to? Well, I think we're doing a pretty good job looking at the technical aspect profession, but I don't think that we're paying enough attention as a profession in medical school all the way up. By the time they get to residency or finish residency, you've had such a long period of time that a lot of things are already set. But I really think that we need to pay attention to focusing on developing leaders early on, developing a culture of what we think medicine should be, keeping our patients first and foremost in what we're doing, and being parts of the communities that were involved in helping provide the best care possible. I want to see the money that's coming into medicine either go to patient care or supporting providers. And to add others into the mix is a concern for me because then we start looking at a, a profit mentality, if you will. And not to say the profits are good, but it's how do you go about making it happen and understand you need capital to do some of these things and whatnot. So there needs to be a good balance. But the challenge is how do we develop the culture Then radiology starting day one of the radiology residency? But it's sort of like if you go to a board meeting, one of the things I do is board meetings is I remind people of our mission, vision statement, envision future. So that you have that as a focus, what do radiologists get, uh, radiology residents get on the first day as to what What's the expectation? And you're entering to a profession long-term. This is where we look to be and what we're trying to accomplish. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily happened. So we as a profession, I think, need to develop a culture that embodies sort of a mission and vision of what we feel that the profession needs to do going forward and then work that into the training that we have and into the way that we conduct our day-to-day business and operations as practicing physicians. Yeah. You've been a part of the ACR's delegation to the American Medical Association for, what, 20 years? Yes. What do you see as some of your biggest wins and biggest frustrations in that association? Uh, I think they're mostly wins. I think uh, over the years it built a good coalition within radiology and have a good reputation and a respect of the House of Delegates going forward. I think we've got you know, respect to a lot of the state medical 
delegations and as well as the other specialty societies there. We've gotten some good wins as it relates to mammography and looking at that and looking at the the screening part and colonography and lung cancer screening and, and several other things. We've had some belly bumping as it relates to the self-referral issue. I think that we've been able to work through all of those issues over the years and certainly much less of an issue as they are now, but that does come to the forefront every once in a while. But I think that we've been able to have the AMA be a sounding board to listen to some of the other problems that our colleagues and other medical specialties have. And certainly we have our issues, but some of the specialties have issues that are far greater than ours. And I think it helps put the problems that you have or we have as a specialty into perspective is that what we all have together and how do we work together to solve new problems for all of us going forward. And I think that's the biggest advantage of what we're doing in the AMA today. Do you feel that the AMA has the same strength of platform and the same strong voice that it had 20 years ago? Or is its voice being diminished by other factors in the healthcare economic marketplace, in the extended world when Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon and Goldman Sachs can come together and form a healthcare provider network when payers are consolidating into larger entities? Yeah, it's, uh, I think the AMA is you know, certainly, they, from my perspective, they get it right as it relates to putting patients and the profession first and what we're trying to accomplish. And I think they they certainly have that right. Are there parochial interests within that? Yeah, just like any diverse organization, you know, anytime you get together and you work together, it's making sausage, if you will. They probably are less important in the message that they have, not because they don't deliver the message well, because it's so many more groups out there competing for the same limited amount of attention points that the legislators have and whatnot is it in Congress. And so just like you're seeing with the 24-hour news cycle, you could get all sorts of different views, whereas 30, 40 years ago, you had two or three news channels that had the news, and that's what you depended on. It's one of many voices, and how well they articulate things is going to depend upon the message that the members and the House of Delegates wanted to deliver. I do think that it will have an increasingly important voice if the corporatization model continues, but it may be a different perspective in terms of how physicians are represented. So, you know, that story is not out yet, I don't think. What would you say have been your most rewarding moments as a leader in radiology? When you look at leadership, it's not all good and bad, but it's about challenges. And addressing the challenges and being successful, or if you fail, what do you learn from those mistakes so that the next time you come up with the same kind of of an issue that you'll be more likely to succeed going forward? But I think growing Charlotte Radiology from practices and having several mergers and getting it to be a a large practice. One of my goals was 
to have Charlotte radiology have a level of, I would call it hyper-subspecialization to the point that our practice was equivalent to or better than a lot of academic practices that are out there. There'll be some that will be better than we are, but it certainly we as a private practice would be in the mix in terms of the level of clinical care and patient care that we'd had. So the challenges of uh, being able to have the opportunity to do that. The challenges of growing not only in the state ACR, but the national ACR and having the opportunity to be able to have the privilege of tackling those challenges and working through the problems and hopefully making what we came up with that you know, the organization is going to be better. You know, the couple of things that I think that I'm proud of is changing some of the culture and the leadership to be more team oriented. But also, we did some great things. We started the, the Leadership Educational Center and got that off the ground. And, uh, you know, I started my very first forum that I had as board chair was to look at leadership development. And what we have, a the first task force was on what the college needed to do with respect to leadership going forward. And so doing that, being able to work with a lot of great people at the AMA, and lastly, the privilege of working with you and some of the other folks on the RLI board. That was a, a special opportunity to, to be able to make a difference and to deal with the challenges that we face. So, yeah, it, it's for me, it's all good. You get your problems, you know, and that comes with the territory. But having a career-long opportunity to make a difference in medicine and radiology, I think, was uh, a real privilege. That's that's fantastic. You've been tremendously successful and accomplished so much. Looking back, is there anything that you wish you had done differently? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, no, I mean there's some minor things that you say. You know, gee, I wish I'd attacked that that problem differently, or, or this problem differently. What could if I'd done that? What would have been a different outcome? But I think, you know, I, I'm pretty satisfied with what I've done. And I it got made a true decision to stay in radiology, but done the orthopedic path. Who knows what happened? I ended up in flight school and not in submarines. You know, where would I be today? But all those decisions have been good. I just feel like I've been able to make a difference in some things. That's uh, kind of what I think as a kid, you, know, you asked the kid about growing up and what influenced me, I think. I saw my parents make a difference going forward and they had the opportunity to make a difference going forward too. I think it's just a lifelong process. Satisfaction in what you've accomplished is a great thing to achieve. That's marvelous. One last question, and that is, is looking ahead, what excites you the most about radiology? If you had a room full of young medical students, people that are just starting in the profession, what would you tell them? is the most exciting things that you look forward to for the field? I think the field can have no, no boundaries in what radiology can do going forward. I think that the key thing to be able to do that is to develop a culture of teamwork and collaboration and learning how to work together, not only to make yourself better but to make the team better and then uh, and the end result is that 
uh, have patients and in our communities you know, be the beneficiary of that. Even if you're looking at the nation as a whole, or even the entire world as a whole, I think if I could be the king, you know, there'd be a lot of things that I would do you know, do differently in you know, just to be able to give the order and make it happen. But yeah, I think the message I would give is, man, there's a huge bright future out there, but the key thing is to take charge, take charge of your profession, provide the leadership that you need to do and work together, and the profession will hold no bounds. It's a, it's a great profession in both medicine and radiology, and there's a lot still that needs to be done. Well, Dr. Van Moore, thank you so much for the many contributions you've made to our field, to the tremendous innovation you have brought to leading radiology practice and for taking the time to speak to us today. Oh, you're more than welcome, Jeff. It's been delightful. I hope folks will get stuff out of it and I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Please join me next month when I speak with Geraldine McGinty, a radiologist from Manhattan, New York, who is the current chair of the American College of Radiology's Board of Chancellors and the first woman to hold this highest office of the ACR in its 100-year history. She rose to this position after a broad and deep palette of ACR service, anchored by her nine years on the Economics Commission, serving the final four as its chair. Dr. McGinty came to the U.S. from her native Ireland following the completion of her medical degree, completing her radiology residency at the University of Pittsburgh, followed by fellowship in women's imaging at Massachusetts General Hospital. Within one year of fellowship completion, she was appointed director of ambulatory imaging at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, where she oversaw a doubling in outpatient volumes through the planning and development of a new multimodality imaging center, while also earning an MBA at Columbia University. She subsequently joined NRAD Medical Associates, a multi-specialty medical group rising to the role of managing partner where she oversaw operations and strategic direction that included NRAD's acquisition of 19 medical practices, electronic health record selection and implementation, and a corporate restructuring including replacement of NRAD's entire executive team. Five years ago, she returned to academia, joining the faculty of the Weill Cornell Medical College, where she recently became the chief strategy and contracting officer for the more than 1,500 member Weill Cornell Physician Organization and the founding academic director of the joint Weill Cornell and Johnson School of Business Executive MBA and Masters in Healthcare Leadership programs. As an avid communicator on social media, Geraldine is one of radiology's top influencers and a tireless advocate for patient-centered care and the role of women in radiology and healthcare leadership. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast. To Peg Helminski for production support, Megan Giampapa for our marketing, Brian Russell for technical support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from Duke University. We welcome your feedback, 
questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or the RLI at R-L-I underscore A-C-R. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.